morning is titled, The Only Fairy Tale That's Not a Fairy Tale. You know, something that's kind of interesting about humanity is that we all love a good story. Everybody loves a good story. And if you just go throughout all of human history and all these different cultures, storytelling is everywhere. It's just a part of every culture all over the place. It's almost like we are wired for story right down to our DNA level. Like we were, I don't know, maybe we were created in the image of the greatest storyteller ever. Hence why every human being seems to have this this fascination towards story. Wouldn't really work in an evolutionary kind of perspective, how that would just happen. Now, a couple weeks ago, I talked about how God is the greatest storyteller ever. And how the Bible's like this beautiful tapestry. It's expertly woven together by God and his divine artistry. And that's one of the ways that we study scripture, by seeing it, uh, even though it's 66 different books, you can see it as kind of one big book and how there's a singular author, God, the Holy Spirit, moving through all these human hands to create this amazing story. And just the same as like an English class in high school where you would, you would read a book and you would look at all these literary themes you would see this foreshadowing, the illusions, the metaphors. You can do that with scripture as well. And actually looking at the Bible this way was how a man by the name of C.S. Lewis became a Christian. So Clive Staples Lewis, he was born in Belfast, Ireland in 1898. Now you're probably wondering who in the world would name their kid Clive Staples. And you you know what? He did not like his name either, hence why he would go by C.S. Lewis. Or actually had a nickname, Jack, that he went by. But anyways, he he actually came from a Christian family. His minister was a grandfather. I think his great-grandfather was a bishop. But throughout his childhood and his teen years, his faith just cratered. There was a sequence of events that that led to him just completely walking away from God. It started when he was just four years old, and his, his best friend, his, his pet dog, got hit by a car. This is 1902, one of the first cars ever made. Literally, the dog wouldn't have known what hit him. Probably would have never seen it before. But anyways, four years old. When he's nine, his mom dies from cancer. After his mom's death, his dad is grieving, doesn't know how to handle this kid, sends him off to boarding school in England. There in England, he's the foreign Irish kid with a funny accent, and he's bullied mercilessly and abused continually. He ends up getting quite sick at school to the point he's taken out of school, and he's put into like a, a school slash hospital for children. But he eventually, eventually kind of recovers. But then World War I breaks out when he's 16 years old, and he's drafted into the war. He gets deployed into France, and he's not there very long before an artillery shell launched by his own army, the British, falls way short of its target, lands right by him and his friends, kills his friends, and severely wounds him, filling him with unremovable shrapnel. So he has to be sent home. So you can easily see someone that went through all of that, how they can become somebody that is a staunch atheist that says, God, where are you? Why did all this happen to me? And he's a very, very smart fellow, and he became this vicious debater against Christianity in these academic environments. And he was just a bitter, bitter person. 
He might have given up on God, but God did not give up on him. See, God surrounded him with people that would continue to chip away at his doubts, at his broken heart, help to heal that. And by the time he was 32, he surrendered his life to God and became a Christian. And he went on to become the greatest Christian writer of the 20th century, writing famous books such as the Chronicles of Narnia and the number one Christian book of the 20th century, Mere Christianity. There was this key moment where things shifted for C.S. Lewis. And he realized there was a God out there that really loved him and cared about him and knew every detail of his life. He was hanging out with his friends, a guy named Hugo Dyson and then J.R.R. Tolkien. You've probably heard of him before. He's the fellow that would go on to write The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. He was a devout Christian. So was his friend Hugo. But anyways, Tolkien in, in specific, that's how you pronounce his name, by the way. Everybody mispronounces it, Tolkien. But Tolkien, there's an E in there. Anyways, he said, C.S., you love to read all these fictional stories. You love a good story and all, the, all these amazing elements that you just love. They all contain elements of the greatest story ever told. The story of God, the redemption plan that, that culminated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he was like, you know, it's, it's as if we've been wired towards this great story. To the point that even these fiction writers, without even realizing it, continue to instinctively and inadvertently retell elements of God's story. And we all just love it. He was like, why, you know, why does everyone just love a good underdog story? Why is everyone moved by a story of self-sacrifice? Or how about good triumphing over evil? Why do we just love when heroes are saving people? Where could such a genetic wiring come from? Why are we all like that? And Tolkien said to Lewis that Christianity is the only fairy tale that's not a fairy tale. It actually happened. And then in that moment... God shows up in a cool way. Just as this, this cool intellectual bomb is dropped, this, this gush of wind suddenly shows up on a calm, still day. And it just surrounds C.S. Lewis and Hugo and Tolkien, and it's like this vortex of wind, and it's blowing all these leaves. And um, the two Christians know what's going on there, and they're like, oh, God's being funny. But in that moment, like C.S. Lewis, his heart opened up, and he realized... God really is this great storyteller. I've loved stories for this reason. See, there's many, many different ways to show that the Bible is true. That Jesus really did die and resurrect. Whether we use history or archaeology, or we look to the prophetic accuracy of Scripture, or the transformative power of, of Scripture throughout all of the ages, even, even into our own lives. Or we could reference the thousands upon thousands of ancient reliable manuscripts and show that the Bible has stayed the same throughout time. But as we've been talking about, another way to look at the Bible is to look at it as a supernaturally authored book. We can look for this divine interconnectivity of literary themes. And even though it's 66 different books written by 40-some different, 40 different authors, written over the course of 1,500 years in multiple languages and in multiple countries, somehow it all weaves together expertly with all sorts of connective tissue and themes that run throughout the entire book. Today I want to talk about a single literary theme. Maybe the most famous one, very famous one, that's in all sorts of fairy tales. Um, Disney basically keeps making the same movie again and again with this. Um, but of course, yes, in, in scripture, it's this fairy tale trope, but it's the fairy tale that's not a fairy tale because it actually happened. 
and we can, um, and by going through this fairy tale that's in scripture, we can take some encouragement for it. So th this theme that we're looking at today, the famous one that's throughout all sorts of scripture here, sorry, that's th throughout all sorts of scripture and is like Disney's go-to and fairy tales are just all about this, is the rags to riches, the damsel in distress, the literary trope. Basically Cinderella. If you don't know that story, she um, had a bad relationship with her family. She was basically like a servant, a nobody, and by the end of the story, she's completely redeemed, meets a prince, and becomes the belle of the ball. And, and, you know, it's fairly similar in Rapunzel or Snow White, or even the movie Shrek, somewhat like that. And you're like, if you've never seen any of those movies, maybe you've seen something like Rocky, or there's a lot of sports Cinderella themes. But anyways, it's like the underdog coming up from the ashes story with some romance element of some kind. Now, you may not think of the Bible as like this big romance novel, but it actually tells the greatest love story ever told. So we're going to kind of pull out this little literary theme and just show that, again, the Bible is kind of the OG. It's the original fairy tale that a lot of other, other fictional writers will kind of riff off of without even often realizing it. We're going to go to John 4 to start things off here. Just some, some context here. Uh, this is very early on in Jesus' ministry. And he's going to meet a lady called the Samaritan woman. And I'm, uh, this is a very long story. It's 42 verses, so I'm actually going to chop it up quite a bit here. Because um, we have a barbecue party we need to get here. And I don't want to withhold people from their hot dogs, lest the riot breaks out. So anyways, some quick historical context here. So again, early in Jesus' ministry, he's starting to go viral. He's getting some followers. People are coming from all over to listen to him speak. And he's leaving southern Israel which is where Jerusalem is, and he's heading all the way back up to the north, the boonies, where he's from, Galilee. But in between is a place called Samaria, and Jewish people do not go to Samaria. In fact, they often will walk all the way around because Jews and Samaritans hate each other. And that's because hundreds of years, numbers of hundreds of years before Jesus, Israel as an entire nation, they, they were... Um, they were straying away from God, they were worshipping other gods, and started to get into some, some evil stuff, and so, you know, when you um, get yourself in a spot of trouble, often you experience some trouble. But what happened is that these, these foreign nations came and they invaded Israel, and they actually took ten of the twelve tribes, and they took them off into slavery and sold them, and to the point that we don't even know what happened to them, they're lost to history, often referred to as the ten lost tribes of Israel. So there's this big empty space that's pretty well left behind in Israel, the, the upper two-thirds. And kind of right in the middle area, this fertile area, these, these foreign nations, these, uh, these superpowers, these empires, they decided they were going to send some colonizers to come live in this region, this region known as Samaria. But then some Jews that lived in the south that were left behind they decided they're going to move to Samaria too. There's some great land there, might as well. And they move over there and they start to intermarry with these, these foreigners, these people from these empires that basically came in and destroyed, you know, like 80% of Israel. So the Jews that actually stayed in Jerusalem and that would later go and recolonize Galilee, they hated the Samaritans because they were a mixture of basically Jewish traders and foreign colonizers. They called them these half-breeds, and they, and they would not allow them to come to Jerusalem to worship. And then, in, and then so the Samaritans were like, well, you can't come here. So it was this really tense political 
issue that was going on at this time. So here's Jesus walking into Samaria, and he's actually going by himself. It says the disciples were a ways behind him. I wonder why. Anyways, he walks. If you ever read scripture and you know some of the political stuff going on, I find Jesus is absolutely hilarious because he just does not care at all. He's just not at all fearful. doesn't play things by the way people do at the time. But anyways, he's heading into this area, and he heads right to Jacob's well. This is named after Jacob in the Old Testament, a place he used to own. Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. He's literally the guy Israel is named after, pretty famous. Anyways, here we are, John 4, starting at verse 5. Talking about Jesus here. Eventually he came to the Samaritan villages, village of Sakar, near the field that Jacob gave, his son, gave to his son Joseph. But Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired from a long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If, only, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within him, giving them eternal life. Just for some context, he's referencing the Holy Spirit here. When you become a Christian, God puts this well inside you, the Holy Spirit. Often, it's a meta, it's a, this metaphor of water is there. But anyways, verse 15. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Fast forward a few verses here. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Then as, just as the disciples came back, they were shocked to see, to find him talking to a, to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. And the story is going to go on to say that a bunch of the village all became followers of Jesus because of the testimony of this one lady, because of this single encounter he had with this one woman. Some of you were like, hey, where's the fairy tale here? I was promised a fairy tale. I was promised some romance. Where is this? Where's Cinderella? Inquiring minds need to know. I'm going to break it down. I'm going to break it down some literary themes here that are all over this story. And it's, from this story, I'm kind of just going to reference um, how this theme is throughout Scripture as well. But anyways, the first one is your Prince Charming. He's there. He's in the story. Of course, this is Jesus. He's a little bit different, though, because the love that we're talking about with Jesus is the love of God, which supersedes all of our typical romance love. The love of God, his romance, is greater than all of our loves. 
And continually throughout the Bible, God is portrayed as being in this loving union with his people. To the point there's even a covenant between them. A comparable is that it would be like a marriage covenant. Like when you make vows between each other, you make this deal. God made a deal with his people. That I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. We're going to love one another. And th- this metaphor of marriage is actually used continually throughout scripture. And again, let me just hit home that it is metaphorical. Uh, there is some weirdos out there that take being married to God or married to Jesus way too seriously to the point of even having marriage ceremonies. It just gets a little bit weird. Uh, if you read scripture that literal, literal, you're going to run into all sorts of problems. Like when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, then you're like, okay, is he multigrain, brown, white, gluten-free? I don't know. When he says, I am the vine, you're like, okay, I don't know how to deal with that. This guy have leaves. But anyways, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor. So God will metaphorically call himself the husband of his people. Numbers of times in the Old Testament. Isaiah 54, 5 to 6. God is speaking to a discouraged Israel. During this time where they were getting like, a bunch of them were kidnapped and taken away and just crazy stuff going on. This time time period called the exile. Isaiah 54, 5 to 6. It says, for your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you back from your grief as though you were a young wife abandoned by her husband, says your God. Let's fast forward to the time of Jesus. Right before he meets this Samaritan woman, this is not an accident again because God is a divine author weaving all of scripture together. In John chapter 3, chapter before, we, meet John, we see John the Baptist, this prophet that was coming before Jesus, preparing the way, letting people know who Jesus was going to be. And he's asked very specifically about Jesus. And it was from a disciple of John's that was a little bit, um, a little bit miffed because this Jesus guy was showing up and he was going viral and everyone was leaving John's ministry to go watch Jesus. So he says here in John 3, 26, starting at verse 26, John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. John replied, no one receives anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you. I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. Here's the key verse. It is the bridegroom the groom who marries the bride and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. So John the Baptist is basically saying, I'm basically one of Jesus' groomsmen. He's like the groom and he's coming for his bride and I'm excited about it to watch all this happen. Jesus himself even refers to himself as the bridegroom. The bridegroom, by the way, is just an older word for groom. Matthew 9.15, that's where Jesus very explicitly refers to himself as this bridegroom. So we see this continually throughout scripture. God's referring to himself kind of like either like a husband or a groom to the people of Israel. And again, it's this metaphor of this loving covenant, this agreement. And And it's not an accident that this is being talked about right before Jesus meets this woman at the well. And I'll tell you why, because wells are very significant, scripturally. So that's our second point here, the well. First one, Prince Charming. Number two, the well. This takes place, this whole story, at Jacob's well, not an accident. So if you were to look throughout the Old Testament in order to study some romance stories, you would find out that Moses met his wife Zipporah at a well. The longest romance story by verses in the Old Testament 
is Abraham's son Isaac and how he got his wife Rebekah because of an encounter at a well. Then we have Jacob, again the guy that the nation of Israel is named after, who would go on to have this place called Jacob's Well. And at that very well, he meets the love of his life, Rachel, in arguably the greatest love story in the Old Testament. The well, historically, in this culture, that's where you went to go meet a spouse. It's where you hung out. If anyone knows any wells today, let me know. But anyways, um, <laughs> thousands of years later, we find Jesus is hanging out at a well. What's he doing? Talking to a woman. What's going on here? And not just any woman, but one who is ridiculously unfaithful, bringing us to number three, the unfaithful bride. And the big theme scripturally. See, this Samaritan woman, she'd been married five different times. That's pretty impressive. I don't know how, like, it's quite a mess. Five failed marriages, and currently with a guy she wasn't even married to. Now she's out at the well at noontime, the hottest time of the day, all by herself. Now normally... Women would go fetch water for their household at the coolest times of the day. It's a desert in Israel. You're not hanging out at noon, out in the hot sun. So you'd go early in the morning or late in the evening. And it was this big social outing. This is what people, I guess, women did for fun back in the day. Let's go draw water together. So they would. They'd go hang out. It'd be this great time. And um, sometimes some guys would show up. They'd talk, whatever. So this Samaritan woman, she's all by herself going in the hottest time of the day to go draw water, which is a very obvious um, giveaway that she is a social outcast. She's probably the pariah of the town. If you were in a tiny village and you've ruined five marriages, you'd probably be the pariah of the town too. She was like considered this homewrecker. People did not like her. Interestingly enough, throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel, God's people, they're continually referred to as being like an unfaithful bride. They're in this love covenant with him, but they're continually breaking the covenant, cheating on him, essentially, even to the point of worshiping other gods, these fake gods. The book of Hosea is all about a prophet that has to stay faithful to this woman that is repeatedly unfaithful to him. And throughout his story, he learns kind of what it's like to be in God's shoes, married to the people of God who are continually unfaithful to him. In Jeremiah 2, God's people are referred to as a bride, but a bride that's turned into a prostitute. Ezekiel 16 says, you know, God is very, very loving, but his people are basically prostituting themselves out for free. It's not exactly this glowing metaphorical reference to God's people. And in, the, in the New Testament, this theme continues because the church, God's people, is referred to as the bride of Christ. But here's the thing, let's get real, we've all been unfaithful to God too. We haven't always put him first, we've sinned against him. Every single one of us has betrayed God many, many times. In our relationship with him, our covenant agreement, we've failed many times, he's never failed. But here's the thing, through it all, in, even in our, our filth, our unfaithfulness, our wretchedness, our betrayal, God still loves us. And he loves us so much that he rescues us. The damsel in distress. The damsel in distress who's tied our own selves to the train tracks. He takes us from this rags to, from this rags to riches kind of story, through this rags to riches story. He takes us through this comeback story for the ages, through this fairy tale romance, this story of redemption. 
bringing you to my fourth point and my final point. Redemption. See, Jesus met this Samaritan woman who was so filthy in her sin that she was absolutely despised in her town. She was a villain. But just one encounter with God changed her life. And what's so wild about this story is that this evil, vile, despised woman is the very first person that Jesus tells that he's the Messiah. The very first person to hear from Jesus that I'm here to rescue you, that I'm here to make things right, I'm here to make a way where there seems to be no way. I'm here to redeem it all, I'm here to cleanse you of your sin, I'm here to make you pure. The very first person that hears that is this woman at the well. Someone who's essentially the worst of the worst of society, the first person is the first person to hear of this redemption of Jesus, the extraordinary love of God. So you can see of how that was so impactful for her. Me, you love me still? You can redeem me? So she runs back to her village and she's excited. She needs to tell everybody about this Jesus guy. I'm sure normally she probably never talked to them. She probably kept her eyes on the ground and just walked on by because she knew they were just hating on her. But here she is, bold as can be, going around, probably knocking on every door in the place, and you got to meet this guy, you got to meet Jesus. And being open about, he knows everything I did, and we've never even met before. She becomes this incredible evangelist, sharing about Jesus, to the point that many in her village become followers of Jesus, and they're also redeemed. It's a story of this vile villain that suddenly becomes the hero of the village. This lady that showed people in the village the way to salvation. She went from being rejected to accepted, dishonored to honored, lonely to loved, hated to celebrated. And that totally mirrors our famous storytellers. That's a Cinderella story if I've ever seen one. A rags to riches, damsel in distress kind of a story. But this singular story also, it also mirrors our own stories too. Because we've needed redemption and rescue as well. See, Jesus very purposely picked someone who's basically considered the worst of the worst. Right off the bat, to show of who he is capable of loving. Who he is capable of redeeming. Who his bride's going to be. It can be the worst of the worst. It can be the pariahs of society. It can be the villains. But he can redeem. He can love where others won't. And from this story, we can learn that if Jesus can love the Samaritan woman and redeem her, bring her into the kingdom of God, he can certainly do the same for us as well. See, the same God that pursued C.S. Lewis, this man that was shrouded in bitterness, hatred towards God, who was this, basically kind of like a villain towards Christianity. But God pursued him and he won him over, he healed his wounds, and he redeemed him. And he set him up in this new life where he became a prolific writer who saved probably millions of people's lives eternally. That same God pursues you and wants to redeem you. This, this, this radical love, this love towards this, you know, the beat down, the broken, the damsel in distress. This is shown scripturally continually. Another very fairy tale, fairy tale story that's foreshadowing Jesus, foreshadowing what's, what's about to happen thousands of years down the road is, is the book of Ruth. 
This is basically a poor, homeless woman. She's a refugee. She's basically starving to death. She meets her Prince Charming, Boaz, who she refers to as her kingsman redeemer, and her life is radically transformed. There's also the story of Rahab. She's the prostitute of Jericho, another foreshadowing of what the gospel can do for you. She lives in this fortress, this evil, evil fortress. She's the prostitute there. But she meets some of the followers of God. She decides she's going to convert. She's going to become a follower of God. She ends up, uh, after you know, Jericho, the walls come down, she's spared. She ends up joining the nation of Israel, and she gets married to a guy from Israel. And what's neat is that she actually marries into the royal line of Israel to the point that she's actually listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So she literally went from a prostitute to royalty, mirroring the, what the gospel story does. We also, in the New Testament, have the story of the Apostle Paul, someone that, again, someone like C.S. Lewis, man, he hated Christians. He took things way further, though, to the point he was even hunting them down and killing them. Jesus still pursued him. And after just one encounter with Jesus, his life is radically transformed. And he becomes, goes on to become the main writer of the New Testament. This is the story of God, the story of a God that will lovingly pursue even the worst of the worst. To redeem, to set free. Even though that it's us that's created the space between us and God, it will be God that bridges the gap. By Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, by his blood that was shed, he paid the price for all of our sins. He paid the price for every time that we betrayed him, every time that we broke this agreement, every time that we, we weren't the loving people towards him that we're supposed to be. And he washes us clean, completely and utterly redeems us. I'm going to read here from Romans 5. Verse 6 says, When we were utterly helpless, damsel in distress, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Loved in the middle of our mess. And here's the, here's the rags to riches, the redemption arc that's in the second portion of the scripture. Verse 9, And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. See, Jesus cleans us up and he presents us, scripture says, as a bride that is without spot or wrinkle. A bride that will be seen as pure. And ultimately, Scripture ends in Revelation, and kind of a big part of that is the, this big wedding banquet that it talks about, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The big party where God and His people, His bride, His love, they're finally reunited to be together forever. And it sounds like a fairy tale, but it's the only fairy tale that's not a fairy tale. So God can take you from your sin, your shame, your mess, and he can rescue you. He can turn any situation around. He can use it for good. 
He can rewrite your story to be one of redemption. He can make you into like you're like a Cinderella. Or if you want a more masculine reference, Rocky Balboa. See, there's a reason why every human being loves a good redemption story, a good underdog story. Why do we love that? Because we've all been made to live one. We're created to live, to live one. We've all been made to go from zero to hero, rags to riches, distressed to blessed, lost to found, dirty to clean, rejected to accepted, sinful to righteous, and even go from death to life. Our souls are crying out for this redemption story, for God to redeem us, to make us the bell of the ball, to be a part of this wedding supper at the end of time, this big party, this celebration, to be together forever with him. And everyone's invited. So this morning, maybe you've never made that decision to be a part of the bride of Christ, to join up and be one of God's people. The invitation is open. And I can guarantee you're not as bad as the Samaritan woman. I can guarantee you're not as bad as the Apostle Paul. I can guarantee you're not as bad as C.S. Lewis was. But yet look how God incredibly redeemed each and every one of them and used them for his glory and for his purposes. So if you've never made that decision, it's very simple. You can say, God, I welcome you into, into my life. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to live for you. God, I want to be in heaven forever with you. I, don't, I want to be a, a part of this big party at the end of time. God, I want to be redeemed. God, all the sin that's in my life, I'm sorry for that. Would you make it right? Could you come in and clean me up and make me pure? And when you invite God to do that, he will. Now, maybe you made that decision a long time ago. You know, everyone's still to this day, we still struggle with some of the messes we've made in our life. Or we, st we still make some. Maybe today you just need to be reminded that God will make a way. That he can redeem. He can, he can forgive. He can clean it up. He, you know, there's, this, there's an amazing story that's being told. You just haven't seen the ending yet. And you just need to be encouraged in that. God's been redeeming people since the beginning of human history. There's nothing too difficult for him.